Good morning. Today's scripture reading is taken from Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. It can be found on page 823 of your Pew Bible, or it's on uh, the screens behind me. At that time, the disciples came to... Sorry, excuse me. (laughs) Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay you what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew 18. If you have uh, ever been hurt by somebody that you know, or offended, or slandered, betrayed, or mocked, bullied, misunderstood, misrepresented, if you've ever been ignored by someone, or marginalized, neglected, or abandoned, exploited, abused. In other words, if you are human, then you know the devastating effects that sin can have in the way that we treat each other. You have tasted how much damage people are capable of inflicting on one another. You know the range of emotions that that damage can trigger. The anger, the anxiety, the frustration, the fear... The embarrassment, the shame. And if you're a Christian and you've ever experienced that from another Christian, then you know how particularly dislocating and aggravating it can be when someone hurts you who should, of all people, know better and who claims to represent and follow Christ. And so there's a certain jolt in hearing Christ's words this morning from Matthew 18, when he answers Peter's question 
about how many times must he forgive a fellow believer who sins against him, Jesus says, not seven times, but 70 times seven. And then later says, after describing a very severe judgment, so also my Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Really? I mean, does Jesus really expect us to forgive when we've been hurt so badly or so often? Doesn't that kind of belittle the damage that was done and make light of it, make it less? What about justice? What about vindication? For many of us, this passage feels a bit insensitive and unfair, if we're honest. And, and if we're really honest, utterly impossible. Utterly impossible. And yet, this is what Jesus says here. We must forgive. Though the language is a little bit less colorful than what you see earlier in the chapter, Jesus is just as harsh in his condemnation of those who refuse to forgive a repentant brother or sister, as he is of those who would cause one of his little children to stumble in sin back in verse 6. He threatens both with eternal judgment. So to put it another way, what Jesus is saying here is that if you're unwilling to forgive someone's sin against you, then you should not expect to find God's forgiveness for your sin in the end. Because your refusal to forgive them exposes a lack of genuine dependence on the gospel that offers forgiveness to you. As one author puts it, we do not truly grasp the good news of Jesus Christ in the gospel until we see that our sin against a holy God is a far greater injustice than anything that could be done to us. Which means that if we do get the gospel, if we do have our dependence on what Christ has done for us to forgive us of that greater injustice, if we do get the gospel and we recognize how indescribably offensive is our rebellion against heaven and how much we have therefore been forgiven of, through faith in Christ, then our relationships under Christ's reign should be marked by a radical forgiveness. Extending true forgiveness is clear and persuasive evidence that we have been forgiven by God. The bottom line is that forgiven sinners forgive sin. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. What does that mean? How is it possible? And is it true of us personally as a congregation? Those are some of the questions I invite us to wrestle with this morning. And I want to start by praying together uh, and encourage each of you to do so personally that God would search our hearts this morning as we look at this passage and what might be for some of us a rather emotionally heavy subject. 
because we're not talking about generalities and theories. Some of us were talking about conversations we had this week. Or we're talking about things we've carried with us our entire life. And so I want us to pray and ask God to search our hearts that we would hear Christ's voice speaking to us by his spirit this morning as we look at this word and his call to radical forgiveness. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that your spirit knows the condition and the burdens of every heart here. And Lord, we confess that this subject is one we would just as soon pass over and not deal with. Because it's hard. It reminds us that this world is broken. It reminds us of the pain that we often experience. It reminds us of how far we've fallen short of you. So Lord, would you minister to our hearts this morning? Where there is pain, would you apply the healing balm of your spirit and your grace? Where there is unrepentance, would you open our eyes the gravity of sin and draw us closer to the incredible satisfaction of your love. Where there's frustration or any other range of emotions, God, would you meet us right where we're at and help us to take seriously your words here, which you give us out of love. Lord, may we feel loved by you this morning in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. As uh, If you've been with us for any number of weeks, you know that. If you're just joining us, we're, uh, we've been working through that book for some time. And in our book, in our journey through Matthew's Gospel, uh, we've recently taken a closer look at some of the values of God's kingdom. There are different parts of Matthew where Jesus unpacks what does it look like to live life under his reign and rule as king? We, he unpacked that quite a bit back in chapters 5 through 7. Chapter 18 and 19 are another place where he's really beginning to unpack for us. What does that look like? And as Pastor Bruce put it a couple weeks ago, Jesus is turning the world's categories upside down on us. So what the world looks on with scorn... So things like humility and weakness and dependence, Christ looks on with favor and love. He turns the world upside down. What the world winks at, sin and rebellion, Christ takes deathly serious. So deadly is sin and so great is Christ's love for his church and his commitment not to let a single sheep wander away in sin. So uh, great is his love and so deadly is sin that he charges his people to protect and to pursue and to restore those who might wander away. That's uh, what we looked at last week in verses 15 through 20. What we talked about is often called church discipline, this loving confrontation that's not willing to let 
something as precious as a brother or sister just wander away. We can't do it. We have to appeal to them to come back, to be reconciled with Christ and with us. So we looked at that last week. And in last week's passage, looked primarily at what happens when someone's walking away from Jesus in sin and not responding to our appeal to, to come back, our, our desire to be reconciled with them. But that naturally raises a question which Jesus is going to answer in our passage this morning. What if they do hear the cry to turn and come back? What do we do with them then? If they come and they recognize, yes, I have done this and it's wrong and please forgive me. Okay, so now what? Do we grant them that forgiveness? And if so, how many times? You know, is there a quota, a certain, you know, uh, limit or cap to how forgiving we should be? You know, so many strikes and then you're out. That's Peter's question. As he hears Jesus talking about church discipline and the call to appeal and, and bring others back, uh, he asks a very natural question. Uh, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And now to be fair, Peter is being pretty generous with the number seven, uh, compared to the rabbis of his day, uh, who kind of set the cap at three strikes and you're out, which is pretty generous compared to us. Sometimes it's one, maybe two, and you're out. But Peter's being pretty generous and, and, and rather pious and, and, and asking, you know, Jesus, okay, so I get, what, what if they do come back, how often should we forgive them? And if you think about his generous answer and the serious nature of sin, uh, Jesus' response still comes off as pretty shocking. He says to him, verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. And just to be clear, Jesus does not mean, you know, keep a checklist on your refrigerator. And every time you somebody sins and you forgive it, you mark off a box until you hit box 491 and then, you know, you're, you're done of your obligation. That's not... His point here, there is no limit. He's talking about radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. But before we go any further, we do need to clarify that the command to forgive here assumes repentance on the part of the one who has committed the offense. Matthew implies that, but Luke's gospel spells that out very specifically. Luke 17, verses 3 through 4, Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. It's important to understand that repentance is part of that equation in forgiveness. If there's no repentance by the offending party, then obviously we still want to have a posture of humility and love toward them. But, but if there's no repentance, we're not talking about verses 21 to 35. We're still back in verses 15 to 20, appealing to that person out of love to turn away from their sin and to seek reconciliation. But if they do come to you in repentance, which means that they have recognized their wrong, they have stopped doing it, 
And they come to you acknowledging their wrong, confessing it, and asking for forgiveness. If they do come to you in that way, then Jesus calls us to grant them forgiveness. What does that look like? How is that possible? Well, to help us understand what that means, Jesus tells us a story, a parable, in verses 23 to 35. And he gives us a picture of radical forgiveness. So look at verse 23 with me. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him his debt. We learn a lot about what forgiveness, what real radical forgiveness is from the opening lines of this little story. In fact, the word and idea of forgiveness comes from the financial world of forgiving a loan, forgiving a debt, canceling that debt, which is what we see here in these verses. But we can say a a few more things about what forgiveness is. First, forgiveness takes seriously the weight of the debt or the offense. Forgiveness takes seriously the weight of the debt or the offense. Forgiveness is not pretending like nothing actually happened or that whatever happened wasn't that big a deal. In the story, the king doesn't just laugh it off and and tell the servant, oh, it's no big deal, go on your merry way. He took the debt very seriously. His original plan was to sell the servant, his family, and all of his possessions, like a bank foreclosing and repossessing, in order to basically try and gain anything he could uh, for the debt that was owed. He had to take the debt seriously. It was too big to ignore. Uh, We're told that the servant owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, obviously, we hear the word talent, we're thinking of, you know, art or juggling or something like that. Talent in the ancient world was a monetary unit. It was the largest monetary unit in that day, worth about 20 years wages for a laborer. So it's, it's the highest unit of currency, and 10,000 was, at that point, the highest Greek numeral. So, so what he's saying here, basically, is that the servant owed the highest amount imaginable. So a bazillion dollars or something like that is, is kind of the idea. Now, the reason that Jesus uses such a ridiculous and unimaginable amount of money here is to make a point. Such is the ridiculous and unimaginable amount of our sin's offense against a holy God. We are meant to see ourselves in the shoes of the servant standing before God the Father with a ridiculous amount of debt that can never be paid. Jesus wants us to see how desperately wicked we are left to ourselves, how great is our offense that warrants God's just punishment. Again, greater than any injustice anybody could ever commit against us. Our offenses 
infinity, whatever you times infinity by, you know, bigger than that. And he wants us to see that because, as one author puts it, without understanding the depth of our sin against God and the riches of his forgiveness toward us, we will never be able to forgive others. We need to see ourselves in that servant's shoes. And we'll return to that idea in a moment. But for now, the first point is that forgiveness takes the debt seriously. It does not minimize the offense. It takes it seriously, which means, by the way, that even though we are seeking reconciliation, it doesn't mean that there will never be consequences for the offense. You know, restitution for theft, reporting things like sexual abuse or physical abuse when they happen. That's one of the mistakes churches sometimes make in applying this, this passage. They think, well, we're just going to deal with some of these things in-house. And so they don't report some of those things. That is not what this passage is saying. The law requires those kinds of things. The victims deserve those kinds of things. It's for the protection of people. And so you don't just pretend like nothing big is happening. And it doesn't mean that we just handle everything in-house. Those kinds of things happen. You must say something. Forgiveness doesn't mean there are no consequences. It's not brushing sin under the rug. It's taking sin just as seriously as Jesus takes it. But when that sin is met with repentance, then forgiveness deals with it in mercy. Canceling the debt of sin for the sake of mutual love and reconciliation in Jesus. And that's the second point, that forgiveness flows from a heart of mercy. Forgiveness flows from a heart of mercy. When the servant realizes the hopelessness of his situation, he falls before the king and he pleads not for forgiveness, but for more time. Just give me some more time and I'll make it up to you. I'll pay you back. Which is kind of how we often respond when we make those similar kinds of mistakes in our failures before God or before others. We ask for more time so that we, out of our own strength and resolve, can make it up to them. But you have to ask, how can someone a bazillion dollars in debt ever possibly pay it back? And the obvious answer is he can't. The debt is too big. The servant has no hope of paying it back. And so... The king goes beyond the servant's request for more time. And instead of simply being patient, he has mercy. He has mercy, pity as it's translated here. He looks with compassion on the sorry estate of the servant. And he helps him in his time of need by canceling the debt. By canceling the debt. So forgiveness takes seriously the weight of sin. It it responds or flows from a heart of mercy. But then third... Forgiveness involves canceling the debt and no longer holding it against the debtor. Canceling the debt and no longer holding it against the debtor. He forgave him the debt, verse 27 tells us. So the servant is set free. The account of sin is closed. The, the, the ledger is canceled. It's blotted out. 
when the king interacts with the servant, he no longer holds this against him. He has foregone retribution and he has extended love in its place. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the king will be offering the servant a new loan anytime soon. Uh, sometimes trust takes time to rebuild, to rebuild, especially, you know, when the sin is, is of a particular weighty or ongoing nature. So we're not talking about foolishness here. We're talking about mercy. And so, you know, but when it comes to the former offense in love, we no longer count that offense against that person. We've canceled the debt, which means that we then absorbed the cost in ourselves. And that's the fourth point. That forgiveness is costly. True forgiveness is costly. It takes sin seriously. It flows from a heart of mercy. It cancels the debt. And it is costly. By no longer holding the servant's bazillion dollar debt against him. That means that the king has to incur the cost himself. And that's perhaps the hardest part of forgiveness I think for us. You know, when we're offended or wronged, we want justice. That's what our heart cries out for. You know, we want the person who hurt us to make it up to us and to feel the pain that they caused us to feel. We want retribution. Forgiveness stops the cycle of pain and retribution. Which means that the pain stops with us. We incur the debt. That's hard. Especially if we're not talking about generalities. But we're thinking of specific things that have been done to us. That's hard. If we're honest, it's absolutely unbearable. It is an unbearable weight. Which is why God does not expect us to bear it alone but reminds us that when Christ died for our sin, he bore not only the sins that we committed against God, he also bore the sins that others committed against us. Think about that for a minute. All sin from all time and all places was poured out on Christ on the cross. The sin we commit and that means the sin that other people's commit. Uh, even when that's directed against us. Christ has borne the cost. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Not just my sin, but our sins. That we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Not by your own wounds. By Christ's wounds. And so when Paul later in Ephesians tells the Ephesians church to do what Jesus is saying here and to forgive one another, he anchors that the basis of that forgiveness squarely in the work of Christ. He says in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave forgave you. That's where the basis comes. That's radical forgiveness. 
It's what we've experienced from God through Jesus, and it's what he therefore calls us to extend to one another through Jesus. He wants his people to be marked by radical forgiveness, taking sin seriously and applying serious grace to it. For some of us, the hard part is taking sin seriously. It is much more comfortable to pretend like nothing ever happened, to sweep it under the rug, to move on, because we don't like conflict, we don't like confrontation, uh, or, or we're ashamed of what happened, or we're, we're too much of a people pleaser, we just don't want to go there. And so our tendency is to minimize the sin and to not take it seriously. For others, our temptation, or the hard part, is applying serious grace. We're not sure we want to cancel the debt. We kind of like the fact that they are now indebted to us and we have them in our grip. And every time they get close to making it up, we can just notch that bar up one more and keep them indebted to us. That feels good. That feels really good when we've been hurt. And so the hard part is applying serious grace. Radical forgiveness tells us we have to do both. We have to take sin seriously and we have to apply serious grace when people come to us in repentance. Forgiveness is hard work. And we, we shouldn't pretend that it's not. Forgiveness is really hard work. And it's okay to be honest about how hard it is. It's okay to be honest and say, I know this is what I've got to do. I don't want to do it. Help me do it. That's okay. What's not okay is to be unwilling to do that hard work. And there's a difference. There's a difference between acknowledging how hard it is and absolutely putting your foot down and not even going there. And that is not acceptable according to Jesus. Because an unwillingness to move toward forgiveness suggests that something other than the gospel of Jesus is ruling your heart. And that concerns Jesus. It suggests that you have yet to truly appreciate how much greater is the debt of your offense against God that he has forgiven you of than whatever debt it is that someone else has committed against you. And that's the problem in the servant's heart as the parable continues. The problem of unforgiveness. So look at verses 28 to 30 with me. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Notice first the, the similarities between the servant situation before the king in verses 23 to 27 and his fellow servant's situation before him. Both of them bear a substantial debt. You know, his fellow servant's debt is, you know, an infinitesimal fraction of what the servant owed the king, but it's not an insubstantial debt. It's a denarii or denarius was um, about a, a day's wage for a labor. And so he's talking about a hundred days worth of wages. That's a pretty substantial debt. And, and both 
this servant and, and the first servant appeal for patience and more time to pay. So there's some similar situations happening in these two stories. But that's about where the similarities end. Right after being forgiven a debt that could never be repaid, the first servant violently seizes his fellow servant, choking him and demanding payment for a much smaller debt, turns a deaf ear to, the, to his fellow's appeal for mercy, and then imprisons the man, forcing him to pay the debt. Something's wrong with that picture. And it should be obvious to us. It's supposed to be obvious to us. There's a disconnect between what the servant just experienced and what he then does to someone else in a similar situation as he was in. And it's truly unbelievable. How in the world can he forget the grace that he just received? Rather than responding with humility and gratitude and gushing to to do unto others likewise. Instead, he responds with a self-righteous pride and a self-seeking ambition, which suggests that he has not only failed to grasp the depth of his own offense and the inestimable measure of the mercy that he just received, but that he doesn't actually see himself as having needed forgiveness in the first place. It's almost as though he kind of just expected the king to forgive him because that's what kings do, kind of an entitlement mentality. You think about our posture before God. How dangerously close do we come to that mindset when we think about our own sin before a holy God? Well, that's just what God does, right? He exists to forgive me and make my life go well. We have this entitlement mentality. We have such a low view of our offense against him that we don't even really think we actually need forgiveness that badly. Not that big a deal. And so we don't find a problem when we turn and demand that others make it up to us instead of canceling the debt as it has been canceled for us. And the, the point here is that when we deal with our, our brothers and sisters like this, who've made an honest mistake, hurt us, offended us, come seeking forgiveness, and we say, no, pay what you owe, we're doing exactly what the wicked servant is doing in this story. We are, rather than responding with humility and gratitude that comes from having had all our sin forgiven through Christ, we carry on with self-righteous pride and a self-seeking ambition that, that fails to see our need for God's mercy and then actually uses his mercy as an opportunity for gain. This servant wouldn't have ever had a chance to go and exact his revenge on his fellow servant unless the king had had mercy on him. He'd be in prison right now. But the king's mercy became an opportunity for this servant to get ahead. How wicked and twisted is the human heart to, to exploit God's mercy for selfish gain. It's no surprise that Jesus has nothing positive to say about the posture of his heart. The story continues in verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, his fellow servants 
saw what had taken place. They were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him, the first servant, and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The king has no mercy for the wicked and ungrateful servant who exploited his mercy and generosity. Neither does God. We don't, we don't think about that or take that seriously. Jesus takes sin seriously. We are saved by grace, not by works. We're not saved by always doing the right thing because we don't always do the right thing. We never have, we never will, the sight of heaven. Jesus gave his life in his life, his death, his resurrection to pay that debt that we could never pay back to God. So we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But we're saved by depending on God's grace, not by exploiting it. And sometimes we fail to make the distinction. When we depend on grace, we know that there is nothing that we contribute to our reconciliation with God except for our sin. That's all we bring to the table. Even our faith itself is a gift of God's grace, enabled by the Holy Spirit's life-giving power. We know that no matter what happens today, we are better than we deserve when we depend on grace. We know that. We also know when we depend on God's grace that our sin has been fully atoned for, that, that our guilt has been taken away, that our shame is covered, our conscience is cleansed, that we who were enemies of God are now his children that our inheritance in him is secure, that there is nothing that can separate those in Christ from the love of God. We know that we have a satisfaction and a security that will last forever in Christ when we depend on grace. We who stood to lose everything in our sin have gained everything by God's grace through Jesus who made our sin to be his sin that in him, we might be the righteousness of God. And if we are depending on that grace, if that is, is our, our hope, our only hope, and we're mindful of God's radical forgiveness toward us, then no matter how hard it is or how long it takes, we will move toward forgiveness. Love can do no other. Forgiven sinners forgive sin. If we truly understand the depth of God's mercy toward us, we cannot help but extend that to others. So what do we do from here? Again, 
you know, for many of us, this isn't theory. This is a lunchtime conversation today or a phone call to a parent or any number of things. What do we do from here? First and foremost, we remind ourselves daily, twice a day, every day of the radical mercy that God has lavished on us through his son. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. If we want to become good at forgiveness, we must understand and cherish the forgiveness that we have in Christ. That is the foundation. That is the first step, the next step, and every step in the process. Second, we commit to putting forgiveness into practice. To taking sin seriously. Resisting the temptation to just blow it off. If it's a significant, I mean, there's things, certain things you just forbear, you apply grace preemptively because they're not that big of a deal. But when there's a, a serious sin and it's not met with repentance, you take that seriously. You don't wink at it. And where it is met with repentance, we respond from a heart of mercy, canceling the debt and absorbing the cost. So that mutual love and reconciliation might flourish among God's people. You know, it's amazing. The testimony to how hard this is is the fact that many of Paul's epistles deal with conflict in the church. They deal, you know, he said, you know, stop, you know, uh, dividing and devouring each other and so on in Galatians. This is hard stuff. But this is what Christ calls us to. And he doesn't call us to anything that he doesn't actually supply the means to be able to do. What he calls us to here, he gives us the ability to do and the basis to do through his life, death, and resurrection. And through the Spirit taking what Christ has accomplished and applying it to our lives. So we take the gospel seriously in our own lives and we take forgiveness seriously and put it into practice. To summarize, Dave Harvey uh, provides a, not Paul Harvey, Dave Harvey, a, a pastor and author, provides a, a helpful image of forgiveness as flowing through a pipe with three valves. All three must be open for forgiveness to move from one person to another. The first valve controlled by the one who sinned, is repentance and a request for forgiveness. Again, that needs to be there. The one who offends needs to confess and ask. The other two valves are controlled by the one sinned against. And these valves can be every bit as difficult to turn as the first. Valve two is a mercy valve. So it releases the person who sinned from the liability of suffering punishment for that sin. To open this valve, the one sinned against must lay down the temptation to say along with the unforgiving servant, pay what you owe. It shuts off the flow of bitterness by opening a flow of love. So the first valve is the mercy valve. The second, or the third valve, opening the third valve requires the willingness of the one sinned against to absorb the cost of the sin. 
you received emotional pain over what she did. Will the pain end with you or will you return it? You endured a blow to your trust because of what he's done over a period of time. Will your heart attempt to force him to pay what he owes? Or will you follow the footsteps of the master and demonstrate a willingness to absorb the cost? So three valves. Confession, repentance by the offender. Mercy and absorbing the cost. And again, what makes all of that possible is the gospel of Jesus. It's the finished work of Christ and the mercy available in the cross that invites the sinner to repent and turn and seek forgiveness from God and from others. Apart from what Christ has done, there is no mercy available. Nothing that will actually do justice with the sin. And it's the radical mercy that we've received from God that motivates us to forgive. And it's the fact that Christ has already borne that weight. The weight of the offense committed against us. He's already borne that sin, absorbing that cost on the cross that frees us to follow his pattern and absorb the cost and not demand retribution, but to extend love in its place. This is impossible apart from Christ. But if we live and walk under the reign of Christ, independence on him, recognizing the mercy we've received. This is and should be a mark of God's people, radical forgiveness for one another. My prayer for us as a congregation is that our relationships here would be marked by this radical forgiveness. It's not easy, but it is good and it is freeing. And if it's something you need help with, I encourage you to take it seriously and get that help. Whether it's talking to an elder or a pastor, this is important. It's important for your own heart and it's important for relationships within the body of Christ. Oh, that we would be ever mindful of God's radical mercy toward us and eager to extend it to one another in radical forgiveness, and mutual reconciliation as is fitting for members of God's kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that your spirit would apply your word right to our heart. And again, Lord, you know how it needs to be applied. Perhaps it's acknowledging our sin and turning and seeking forgiveness from someone that we've wronged. The shame or the embarrassment, the guilt, it's kept us away. Lord, would your spirit give us the grace to repent and to confess and to begin the process of forgiveness. Maybe it's the unbearable pain and anger and frustration and betrayal. Lord, remind us that you are not unfamiliar with that. For you experienced in your own life 
on earth. That same betrayal. That same exploitation. And not only did you experience it against you, but you bore the weight of what's been committed against us on yourself. You're not unfamiliar with our sin. And you're not unfamiliar with the sins committed against us. And may we be mindful and hopeful that your grace really is sufficient to help us walk through this process. And may it bring freedom and life. May it bring joy and release. May there be joyful reconciliation, God. Something that when the world looks at it, they say, that's impossible. Only God could have done that. Lord, may it be so among your people. May we take seriously our sin. And may we apply serious grace, God. In Jesus' name, amen.